Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of The Law of Self-Defense. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for The Law of Self-Defense. Thank you very much. And today we have a kind of bifurcated show. So the first half of today's show will uh, be public. It's streaming over YouTube and Twitter and Rumble, as is our normal practice. And during the first half of the show, I want to talk with all of you about the importance of documenting your specialized knowledge of use of force law and use of force tactics. Uh, the second half of the show, I'm going to provide you with a video illustration of this kind of specialized knowledge for the purpose of you documenting that knowledge um, in case it ever informs your decision making in self-defense. But that video is extremely uh, bloody. And uh, so that part of today's show will not be publicly broadcast. It'll be streamed. Uh, we'll cut off the YouTube, the Twitter, and the Rumble streams and just continue with the Law of Self-Defense members only stream. So that should be your, your expectations for today's show. If you're a Law of Self-Defense member, you should be over at the your member dashboard and uh, you'll be enjoying the entirety of the show, both the discussion about the importance of documenting your specialized knowledge and uh, the bloody video of the, uh, the essentially a bank robbery that we're going to be watching as a illustrative example of specialized knowledge that you need to document, and we will today. If you're not a law self-defense member, you'll only be seeing the first half of today's show. Uh and there's no really no good reason for that at all, uh, because you can become a law self defense member for only ninety nine cents. Just ninety nine cents, folks, gets you a two week trial law self defense membership, uh, the same access to our members only content as any other member for that two week period for just ninety nine cents. And if you stay a member after the two weeks, and virtually everybody does, it's still dirt cheap. It's only about thirty cents a day, less than ten dollars a month to be a law self defense member. And then you get to enjoy the entirety of today's show and all our other Law of Self-Defense members only content. You can take advantage of that two-week trial membership at lawselfdefense.com slash trial. All right, folks, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and launch the formal start of today's show. Here we go. All right, so first half of the show, documenting your specialized knowledge. First, what is specialized knowledge? Well, specialized knowledge is not common knowledge. We're all presumed to possess common knowledge. We're all presumed to know that fire is hot, ice is cold, knives are sharp, things along those lines, things you just learn from normal life experience. Specialized knowledge is knowledge that you acquire through specialized education and training. Could be self-taught, could be in some kind of class, um, could be this kind of content that you watch from Law of Self-Defense. Things that the general public wouldn't be expected to be knowledgeable about, but you're knowledgeable about because of your specialized training and expertise. Why this important distinction? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One is that uh, often this specialized knowledge informs your decision-making in self-defense in a way that would not be apparent to someone who lacks the specialized knowledge. So an example of this kind of specialized knowledge in a self-defense context might be the Tuller drill. The Tuller drill 
is um, uh, an example of knowledge that helps us understand that an aggressor armed with a contact weapon can be a lethal, deadly force threat to us, even if they're not standing immediately beside us. But they can be a deadly force threat at a distance that's substantially greater than an untrained person might expect. Uh, so you're being threatened by somebody with a knife, for example, and they're standing 10 feet away. Well, if they're 10 feet away with the knife, they, they can't extend their arm and reach you with the knife, right? They don't have 10 foot long arms. So if you were to use deadly defensive force against that person, a prosecutor might argue, they have argued, um, that your use of the deadly defensive force was premature because that person was not yet an eminent threat of deadly force harm to you. And that's the condition that is required before you're justified in using deadly force and self-defense. The prosecutor might pace off 10 feet from the jury box and turn back to the jurors. Maybe even, maybe even hold up the knife. Say, ladies and gentlemen, at this distance, with this little tiny knife, am I a deadly force threat to you? And of course, the prosecutor is trying to suggest to the jurors' minds that the answer should be no. That, in fact, the person you defended yourself against at a distance of 10 feet, armed with that same knife in evidence, was not yet a deadly force threat against you, against which you were justified in using deadly defensive force, in which case it was not lawful self-defense, in which case you're just guilty of an unlawful killing. Convicted. In fact, the tool drill tells us that someone armed with a knife at 10 feet can readily be an eminent deadly force threat because the relevant tactical question is, can they bring that knife to bear against you in a shorter period of time than you would require to defend yourself? If the answer to that is yes, then they are an eminent deadly force threat. They're within your defensive envelope. And the way Dennis Tuller did this, studied this, answered this question, um, he was a police officer in Salt Lake City. His, uh, he was a trainer for his department. His officers faced this dilemma all the time. At what point is someone with a contact weapon actually an eminent deadly force threat against which we can use deadly defensive force? And the way Dennis framed the question for police officers was, well, how long does it take one of my guys typically to get his service pistol out of the service holster and score center mass hits on a target? And Dennis believed that that time period was about one and a half seconds. So draw the pistol, get it on target, fire a couple of rounds, center mass, 1.5 seconds. Well, then the relevant question from a distance perspective is how much distance can an aggressor armed with a contact weapon like a knife, how much distance can they cross in 1.5 seconds? Because if they're inside that distance, well, then they can bring the weapon to bear against the officer before the officer can defend himself. If they're outside that distance, arguably, they're not yet in eminent deadly force threat because the officer still has the ability to defend himself before they could bring the knife to bear. And when, Den when Dennis studied this with many students, he had them run a certain distance in a second and a half. Turns out that typically that distance is 21 feet, seven yards. And that became known as the Tuller distance, the Tuller, the exercise being the Tuller drill and the distance being the Tuller distance, meaning theoretically, hypothetically, uh, someone within 21 feet with the contact weapon is an imminent threat with that weapon. 
that can close the distance to you before you can defend yourself. Someone further than 21 feet is not yet. Now, of course, this is all very uh, mathematical, and the real world is much more complicated than this. So 21 foot's not a magic number. It's simply providing context that someone armed with a contact weapon can be an imminent deadly force threat, even if they're substantially further than you might expect. Much further than 10 feet, for example. They could be 15 feet away, still be an imminent deadly force threat. It's all a question of how quickly they can close the distance. Well, say you're in that courtroom and you have that prosecutor who paces off 10 feet from the jury box, holds up the knife, asks the jury whether or not he's presenting as a deadly force threat to them. And they think in their heads, well, no, he's, he's too far away. He's reaching out with his arm with the knife and he can't reach them. That's a dangerous jury for you. If you defended yourself with the knowledge of the tool or drill in your mind, you're taking a defensive training class. They taught you the tooler drill. You're faced in the real world suddenly with a, a, an aggressor with a knife. He's 10 feet away. That's well within the tooler distance of 21 feet. You use deadly defensive force to defend yourself. And now the prosecutor is suggesting to the jury that your use of deadly defensive force was obviously unlawful because the aggressor with the knife was a whole 10 feet away. You know that's not the relevant tactical or legal question. And you'd like the jury to be informed about that as well. So you'd like to be able to explain to the jury, either in your own testimony or more likely in the form of a, a use of force expert witness hired by your defense. You'd like to have explained to the jury this whole concept of the Tuller drill and that 10 feet is not too far away. 10 feet, in fact, is well within the Tuller distance. But this knowledge of the Tuller drill is specialized knowledge. It's not something the jury would know by default. It's not common knowledge. It's specialized knowledge. So because the jury won't know it when they're chosen for jury duty, you need to educate them on this specialized knowledge. And you are allowed to educate the jury on specialized knowledge. If, if you can document to the court that you possessed that specialized knowledge at the moment you acted in self-defense. Because if you did possess that knowledge, then arguably it informed your decision-making in self-defense. Reasonable enough. But what have you only learned about the tool or drill afterwards? You defend yourself against this guy with a knife knowing nothing about the tool or drill. Never heard of it. You just shot him because it seemed like the right thing to do. Not because it was informed about any knowledge of the tool or drill because you didn't have any knowledge of the tool or drill. And then after the act of self-defense, while you're waiting these pending trial, you're reading through some self-defense books or something, and oh, wow, you, you learned about the Tuller drill then. And you're like, yes, yeah, see, I, I did make the right decision I'm, I'm, now that I've learned about the Tuller drill. Here's the problem. Learning about the Tuller drill after the fact could not have informed your decision-making in the moment. And if it couldn't have informed your decision-making in the moment, it was not part of your subjective state of mind, and therefore it's not admissible as evidence. Now, you might Ask your attorney to argue to the court. Well, Your Honor, he, he did know this at the time, and therefore it should be admissible. It did inform his decision-making. The jury should therefore learn about this. And the prosecution is going to say, well, where's the evidence that he knew it at the time, that he didn't just learn of it afterwards? Because in the absence of evidence that you knew it at the time, well, then, for all we know, you're just making it up. There needs to be something, some, more than zero, not a lot, but more than zero evidence that you possess knowledge of this tool or drill at the time you acted in self-defense. And how might you do that? Well, 
you might have taken a defensive class, you might have read a book, you might have watched this show, this Law of Self-Defense show, uh, and maybe any of those ways you might have acquired knowledge of the tool or drill before the moment you had to defend yourself against a criminal predator, but how do you document that? Well, you know, we talk about the tool of drill in our stuff, our books, and I always encourage people read our book like it was a textbook. It, it doesn't read like a textbook. It's all written in plain English. Uh, but make notes, highlight things, underline things, make notes in the margins, put dates in the margins. When you read interesting things that you think, you know, you, you may use this information to inform your decision making in self-defense. And then your lawyer could bring this book in. Your book, your annotated book, your hand annotated book as evidence of you having acquired this knowledge before the moment you had to act in self-defense. You may have taken a course, and the course came with a syllabus and a certificate with a date on it. We, we provide certificates with dates for all our courses. Um, that's documenting that you possess whatever knowledge was in that course. Uh, or if you're a law self-defense member, one of the things we do for our members is we provide documentation of every every show we do. So, for example, here's our show from yesterday where we talked about the street performer statue. So perhaps you watched yesterday's show with us. Um, after the live stream of the show, which is normally the, the initial way that we share our content, we, of course, take the recording of the live stream and we make it as a playback for our Law Self-Defense members. This is the Law Self-Defense blog. We have thousands of blog posts and videos there, uh, largely locked down for our Law of Self-Defense members. Now, you may be thinking, well, I, I watched yesterday's show on YouTube. What's different about watching the playback on the Law of Self-Defense blog? Well, if you're a member, of course, you get the same video that we live stream, the same one that's still available on YouTube today, but you get more. You get additional resources that may have been relevant to yesterday's show, like the original video file of the event we talked about. Um, if there's documents that are relevant, you get PDFs to those documents, for example, which we, we don't provide any of that in the in the public streams. A um, little promo for our book there. You can get the book for free at lawselfdefense.com slash free book. But another thing we do for our members is we provide a transcript of every show on the blog post. So it's in there in text form, as you can see here. And you'll see it's our shows are long. So the transcripts are long. But not only do you get that transcript, and this is only for Law of Self-Defense members. These are locked down blog posts, so you need to be a member to access this. Not only do you get the transcript right there embedded at the bottom of the blog post, but you also get the PDF, a downloadable PDF of the transcript of every show. Looks like this. So it's nothing fancy. It's just a, a PDF version. Uh, with the title of the show, the date of the show. The key is it's downloadable for you members. So you download it to your computer. You keep it as a record, as documentation of your acquisition of this specialized knowledge. And that's what makes it admissible in court, which is particularly important if it is if that specialized knowledge was why you acted in that particular way in self-defense. That's why you fired that shot at 10 feet. Now, a prosecutor is going to try to argue to a jury that 10 feet was unreasonable. You should have waited longer. Maybe the shot never had to be fired. Maybe if you'd waited another two feet, the aggressor would have changed his mind and just gone home. And nobody would have had to have died that day. So you jumped the gun, so to speak. You need to counter that argument. 
because that is why you shot the guy. That is the tool or drill knowledge is what makes your use of force reasonable. And if the jury doesn't have that context, they may well conclude it's unreasonable and off the person you go. We don't want that. We want you to be hard to convict, not easy to convict. And this kind of documentation can be absolutely critical in your ability to persuade the jury by having that use of force expert witness talking about the tool or drill or whatever other specialized knowledge informed your decision-making in self-defense so they can see it was reasonable and therefore lawful self-defense. And that's an acquittal, folks. By the way, you think the prosecutor knows when he's thinking about prosecuting you in the first place, whether or not you're likely to be able to document the foundational basis for your use of force and self-defense and that you think the prosecutor knows that you're much more vulnerable to effective prosecution. You're much easier to convict if you can't document your specialized knowledge that informed your decision-making in self-defense. Yeah, they know that. You think that if your defense counsel can show the prosecution all this massive amount of documentation of your specialized knowledge, all of which the jury can be instructed on by an expert witness on the defense behalf. You think the prosecution realizes, you know what, this, this is going to be a hard to convict case. Yeah, they will. And they don't like to bring hard to convict cases to trial, folks. Most prosecutors have conviction rates of trial at 90%, 95%. And it's not just because they're you know brilliant lawyers. Many of them are very good lawyers, but it, it's because they get to choose which cases go to trial. So if your favorite sports team got to choose which opponents had played every Sunday, they'd have a 90% win rate too, right? They just wouldn't play the hard teams. So if you can present to a prosecutor as a hard to convict case, you're much less likely to get prosecuted in the first place. You become an unattractive target for prosecution. And a big part of that is your ability to document the specialized knowledge you want presented to the jury in your defense. So that's what I wanted to share with all of you in the first half of today's show, the importance of documenting your training. And of course, it doesn't have to be done only through law of self-defense or even through law of self-defense, but whatever specialized knowledge you have, I would urge you to make sure you document it and keep that documentation in a safe location because you may need it someday. And it could be the difference between a conviction and an acquittal. At law of self-defense, we try to make the documentation process as convenient and efficient and pain-free for our members as possible. That's one of the benefits of being a Law of Self-Defense member, which, again, you can do for only 99 cents, folks. Get a two-week trial membership for just 99 cents at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. And after the two weeks, it's still dirt cheap. It's only 30 cents a day to be a Law of Self-Defense member, less than $10 a month to get all our members-only content and the benefits of these transcripts and everything else we do for our membership. But at least you should try the two-week trial for 99 cents, folks. You, you can hardly lose there at lawofselfdefense.com slash trial. All right. Now, we're going to move on to the second half of today's show. And this is the very, very bloody bank robbery video. Um, this is it up here, but I'm not going to play it on the public streams because YouTube freaks out. Um, and in any case, this is an example of the kind of specialized knowledge that, that we provide in our members only content. So I hope I hope all of you on YouTube and uh, Twitter and Rumble learned a thing, an important thing about documenting your specialized knowledge. 
Now we're going to move on to the, if you're a Law Self-Defense member, don't go anywhere. We're continuing the show. But uh, if you're watching on YouTube, this is the end of the show for you. So have a good weekend.